Does God sleep? Does God sleep? Well, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 8, it tells us of an account where Jesus is with his disciples on a boat in the midst of a storm. And beginning in verse 24, it says that the boat was swamped with waves and Jesus was asleep. Disciples thought they were going to perish. They said, save us, Lord, we're perishing. And Jesus said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Wave after wave after wave is rocking the boat. The disciples fret. Jesus slept. Sleep. Sleep is God's generous gift to humanity. The Bible speaks of sleep as something good in Psalm 127, verse 2, that God gives his beloved sleep. Sleep is perhaps the most underrated physical need for healthy living. Depriving your body of sleep can have severe consequences. Impaired cognitive function, mood disturbances, depression, increased risk of chronic disease, diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease. It can lead to accidents, injuries, decreased productivity, increased misunderstandings with other individuals. And as human beings, we need sleep. And Jesus, as the God-man, needed to sleep. But does God sleep? Well, Psalm 121, verse 4, gives us the emphatic answer Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. This is a verse that emphasizes the constant vigilance of God. The scriptures teach that God is omnipresent. He is always active. He is always awake. It does appear, however, to human beings at times, God appears to sleep in that he does not appear active, particularly in the midst of trials. In Matthew chapter 8, as Jesus is sleeping during the storm, it was because he was physically exhausted. But also his sleeping, which was that that lack of engagement in the midst of of the waves and the wind, actually taught a spiritual lesson to the disciples about faith. So like the disciples in the boat, Psalm 44 is going to teach us something about faith. The perception of the psalmist is that God was asleep. That is to say, it appeared as though he was not alert to the peril that was coming upon the nation. I'll begin just by reading the last four verses, which is 23 through 26, where the psalmist calls on God to wake up. Psalm 44, beginning in verse 23. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust and our belly clings to the ground. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Last time we were studying Psalms, we did two Psalms. We did 42 and 43 together. Well, Psalm 44 extends the same sentiments as these previous two psalms. All of these psalms were written at an earlier date than when they were compiled. But these three psalms, 42, 43, and 44, may have been purposely compiled together, purposely arranged this way, during Israel's exile to encourage the exiles. Here they are in exile in a hopeless situation, without a temple to worship God, Psalm 42, 43, 44, encourage them in the midst of their trial. Psalm 44, just like 42 and 43, the title is To the Choir Master, so it's a song. It says, a masculine or a meditation of the sons of Korah. So these three psalms written by the same individuals and having the same title. And it's almost as if the, the author of Psalm 44 had been reading the previous two Psalms, 42 and 43. Remember, if you, if you would, a couple of weeks ago when we studied 42 and 43, we found the downcast soul, the downcast individual in turmoil. But he found hope by remembering the corporate gathering and that affirmed God's presence with him and God's good intentions, even in the midst of his depression. 
Psalm 44 begins with the community doing exactly what the repeated chorus. Remember that repeated chorus of 42 and 43? Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Well, now they're going to do that. They're going to trust their downcast soul to God by rehearsing God's sovereign and saving grace in the events of Israel's history. The context in which the sons of Korah wrote this lyric can't be determined exactly. We know that it's a psalm that has helped God's people when they're going through suffering, the, the diaspora Jewish community in exile, uh, likely use this psalm to, to encourage them in the midst of turmoil. But that's not the context in which it was written. It was written hundreds of years earlier than the exile. Two possibilities have been suggested. One is the military campaign that was launched against the Assyrian king Sennacherib, against Judah. Uh, Sennacherib launched his campaign against Judah in 701 B.C. Sennacherib's army invaded Judah They besieged Jerusalem, and they nearly captured the city before they were driven back by divine intervention. That's one possibility. Another possibility is uh, what which I prefer is actually found in 2 Kings 22 and 23 and 2 Chronicles 35. Turn to 2 Chronicles 35, and this is a period of time when Israel was experiencing revival. Renewal under the reforms of the godly king, Josiah. In 2 Chronicles 35, Israel appears to be in a state of favor with God. Josiah is one of the good, few good kings. Uh, he encouraged the nation toward godliness. He encouraged the nation to keep the Passover and keep the ordinances of God. He even commanded the respect of the leaders, the enemy kings that were around him. Second Chronicles 35, let's start in verse 20. After all this, when Josiah had prepared the temple, Necho, the king of Egypt, that's the Pharaoh, went up to fight at uh, Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah went out to meet him. But he sent envoys to him. This is uh, the Pharaoh sending envoys to Josiah. And he said, what have we to do with each other, king of Judah? I am not coming against you this day, but against the house with which I am at war, and God has commanded me to hurry. Cease opposing God, who is with me, lest he destroy you. Nevertheless, Josiah did not turn away from him, but disguised himself in order to fight with him. He did not listen to the words of Necho from the mouth of God, but came to fight in the plain of Megiddo. And the archers shot King Josiah. And the king said to his servants, take me away, for I am badly wounded. So his servants took him out of the chariot and carried him in his second chariot and brought him into Jerusalem, and he died and was buried in the tombs of his fathers. All Judah, verse 24, all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for Josiah. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah. And all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day. They made these, these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. Now, I believe as we study Psalm 44, the context may allude to this event. It's unnecessary to know exactly, but I believe that's the case here, and that perhaps the lamentation that's mentioned in Second Chronicles, that singing men and women, is actually the lamentation of Josiah's death written of in Psalm 44. It certainly appears that under King Josiah, the nation was serving God blamelessly. They were a blameless people. They were, an in, they were innocent as a nation, at least during that time period. And we're going to see that context as we come to Psalm 44. Psalm 44, as I said, begins with the community trusting their downcast soul to God, And they do this first by rehearsing God's sovereign and saving grace in the events of Israel's history. Look at verses 1 to 3. O God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but them you planted, you afflicted the peoples, but then, them, I'm sorry, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm. 
and the light of your face, you, for you delighted in them. In these first three verses, the psalmist is reminding the people of God, Israel, of his particular love for them as a nation. You delighted in them, it says in verse 3, in the past. And this was demonstrated by God's faithful deliverance of his people. He was remembering our God, our help in ages past. We heard the deeds you performed in the days of old. You drove out the nations with your hand. It wasn't us. It was your power. It was your right hand that saved them, and you delighted in them. And you only need to be a little familiar with the history of the nation of Israel to know how God did this over and over again. We see it in the Exodus when God delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea. We see it throughout the book of Joshua as one by one God uh, judges their enemies and they possess the land of Canaan that God had given them. Then in verses 4 through 8, these past actions of God are applied to the people in the present. Verse 4, actually commentators believe, is the is Israel's king speaking on behalf of the nation. Maybe Hezekiah, maybe Josiah, confessing that God is their king. Verse 4, you are my king, O God, ordain salvation for Jacob. Now take note as I read verses 5 through 8. The they and them of the past, right, of verses 1 to 3 talking about the past, the they and them now become a present, us and we. Look at verse 5. Through you, we push down our foes. Through your name, we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me, but you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever, Selah. The mighty acts of God from one generation are now communicated to the present generation, so they're not forgotten. This is something we see throughout the Old Testament. God prescribed this in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. God told Israel, and Moses reminded Israel of all the things that he did for them. And then in verse 9 of Deuteronomy 4 is the prescription. He says, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Then he says this prescription, make them known to your children and your children's children. This was a priority for the Jewish people, this passing down of God's word through their tradition, through the word itself. Like even to this day, they have the bar mitzvah, a 13-year-old Jewish boy becomes a man. Why? Because he has completed his reading of the Torah and even things like the Passover Seder today are designed for one generation to tell the next generation of God's powerful deliverance, lest they forget. If you don't tell the next generation, quickly they forget. All of this recounting of God's faithfulness in the past is designed to stir a confidence in the present so that God would be praised. Look at verse 8 again. In God, we have boasted continually and we give thanks to your name forever, Selah. Selah, stop. Think about what was just said in these eight verses. Meditate on this song of the first eight verses. They set us up. We're anticipating here something to come. God delivered us in the past. We're, we believe in now. Surely there's victory coming. Amen? But look at verse 9. A radical shift in the tone and content. Verses 9 through 16 express bewilderment over the present state of the nation. Take note as I read these verses, the repetition of the word you, speaking of God, six times. Verse 9. But, and that's a strong but, because it changes everything. But, you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us 
have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for the slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. You have made us a taunt for our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face, and the sound of the taunter and the reviler at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. With verse 9, without any transition, we move from this expectation that we're going to praise God for this victory to a reality of lamenting even his rejection. As if to say, our fathers experience victory, Lord, because you love them. But what's happening to us? Why are you bringing defeat on us? Do you love us less than they? Past victories put our enemies to shame, but now present defeat makes us a reproach. The psalmist feels forsaken by God, that God is forsaking the nation, and he unquestionably lays the blame for this suffering at the very throne of God himself. And we can understand, you know, we love to say, if God be for us, who who can be against us, right? Amen? But how about when life feels like God is against us. The psalmist's pointed language here leaves us with no doubt as to the source of the nation's suffering. It's God. God, the nations around us are mocking us, bringing shame on us. God, why did you put us in this position? You've rejected and disgraced us. You've made us like sheep to the slaughter. You've made us a byword among the nations. You've made us a laughing stock. Now, I find it remarkable. Think about this, as I was thinking about this. This is in God's Word. This is in the Psalter. This is in the praise book of Israel. The book that is known for exalting and praising God is here now expressing disappointment in God. And there's no editorial comment here saying, yeah, but eventually God came through. So you can imagine. It would be like us coming in on Sunday morning. We sit down. Brother Sam leads us. He says, I'm going to lead you in a new song today. He comes up and the words go up on the screen and we start singing. Oh, Lord, you have made us like sheep for the slaughter and scattered us among the nations. You sold your people for a trifle. You have made us a taunt of our neighbors. Can you imagine that? That's the reality of this psalm. Now, there are no hymns that I know of that incorporate these verses, but this is what Israel sang to worship God. They're worshiping him even while it seems like his hand is against them. Some would look at this and say, it's a negative confession. Have faith. But this is faith. Believing that God is good, believing that he will deliver them even when they don't see it, even when they don't feel it, even when they feel like God is against them. Do they believe? They believe that behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now let me ask you, does Psalm 44 offend you? Do you look at this and piously think, how can anyone blame God? How can anyone blame God? Brethren, this psalm, in my opinion, this psalm is an honest confrontation with reality. The psalmist knows that God is sovereign, that he is the source of suffering. It expresses real feelings that one feels during suffering. Look, even if you're foolish enough to believe that bad things happen in life by random chance, maybe you don't believe that God is the source of suffering, or maybe you believe Satan is the source for suffering, deep down you know If you're a believer, you know at the very least, you know that God could have intervened and stopped that suffering, but he chose not to. Why did you put me through this, God? And even if I don't believe it was your hand, it was the Satan, it was my sin or whatever, you allowed this to happen. And if you don't believe that God was sovereign, you could walk away disappointed with God. But consider these statements, how emphatic. The psalmist demonstrates a high view of God. 
God is not only sovereign in the victory that we're expecting to come, but whatever he ordains is right. The problem with the defeat here of this nation and the suffering of God's people is not that God had a lack of power, not at all, but that God is the active force behind the tribulation that was befalling God's people. Brethren, this is our sovereign God. He is not a God that merely reacts to calamity. He creates it. And if you say that that's blasphemy, I would direct you to Amos 3.6, which asks the rhetorical question, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Who else are you going to put in that into the hands? Are you going to Satan? Do you really want to give that kind of power to Satan? Chance? Really? Chance? What a hopeless prospect to think that all things happen. Calamity happens by chance. But you see, by acknowledging that God is the source of suffering, we're also acknowledging that he alone can fix it. He started it, he knows everything and all the mix of it, and he can fix it. To say that God has nothing to do with suffering or that it's chance is to take all hope away from us. But it's because of God's sure hand that it's coming. We can have hope. You don't have many other, your other options are Satan, yourself, or chance. Do you really want to lay suffering into the hand of any of these? Now let's go on in the psalm. It's one thing if these people brought the suffering upon themselves because of their sin, but that's not the case. All this is happening to them despite their faithfulness. Look at, look at verse 17 to 21. Verse 17. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and have covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten your name, God, or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. This is a, an amazing statement here, particularly from an Old Testament saint. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to the psalmist. The Holy Spirit did. Because it's really amazing. So why do I say it's it's an amazing statement of faith here in verse 17 to 21? Because all the Jews knew was the law. They knew sowing and reaping. Throughout the history of Israel, the scriptures emphasized blessings to the obedient, cursing to the disobedient. All they knew, they lived by Deuteronomy 28. Blessings come upon the nation as they obey the commandments, Stray from the commandments and you incur defeats. And the expectation of this permeates the Old Testament, Torah and the prophets. You reap what you sow, you get what you deserve. This is what the Old Covenant teaches. This is what life is like under the law. But then, in that same Old Testament, you have some irregularities, like the book of Job. Job was righteous. He denied any disloyalty to God. He was declared righteous by God. So how do you explain his suffering? Job's friends tried and failed. And like Job, the psalmist, who's writing on behalf of the nation, he denies any disloyalty to God, both inward and outward. This is not merely we're going through the motions. This is heart. Look at look again at the psalm, verse 18. He says, our heart has not turned back nor have our steps departed from the way. So the heart is right and the actions are right. Verse 21, he says, God, you know the secrets of our heart. These are righteous people who suffer. Why then are they in such turmoil? Lord, we've been faithful to the covenant, but you crushed us. We remembered your law, but you forgot us. We've been loyal, but you've afflicted us. What are you going to say about this? What is that legalistic voice inside that body of death of yours answering to this? Oh, they're just complaining sinners. Surely they must have done something wrong. Look how prideful they are. 
They're not accepting the truth. Or at the very best, they're naive. God's fair. God is fair. He would never repay evil for good. Now, can you dismiss this whole psalm as merely the product of sinful human complaining? If you can, then what do you do with the book of Job? You want to take that out as well? What about Ecclesiastes? Take that out? This is God's word. God inspired this psalm in the book of praise, no less. If you dismiss it, you're going to dismiss a wonderful truth that is revealed in the New Covenant. Judaism misses this. Legalism and religion miss this. The prosperity gospel misses this. Jesus' disciples miss this. In John chapter 9, when the Jewish disciples came with their Jewish legalistic religious mindset and they asked Jesus, who sinned that this man, his, this man or his parents, that he was born blind, they ask this because suffering is a result of sin. That's what, that's what our religion says. You reap what you sow. If this man was born blind, there must have been sin, either on his part or his parents. Jesus answers in John 9, 3. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. The man's blindness was not connected to sin or chance. His suffering, his blindness from birth, offered the opportunity for the work of God to be displayed by the Son of God. And it's only divine revelation that revealed this to the sons of Korah in Psalm 44. Psalm 44 is not often preached on. It's not a popular psalm. But it is quoted in the New Testament in Romans 8. We'll look at that later on. The verse that's quoted is verse 22. Look at verse 22. Psalm 44. Yet, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's saying here, we're innocent, we're faithful, but we're martyrs. Why? For your sake. For your sake, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That is a new covenant idea. That is throughout the New Testament. Suffering for God's sake. Acts 5.41, the persecuted disciples rejoiced. Why? They considered it, uh, to be considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Acts 9.16, God calls the rabbi Saul, saying, For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Jesus told him this ahead of time, so that at the end of his life, when Paul would be delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, he writes in 2 Corinthians 12.10, Therefore I am well content with weakness and insults, distress, persecution, and difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And for Paul, this was just a momentary light affliction because it was preparing him for an eternal weight of glory. And it's not just Paul. The entire book of First Peter was written to suffering saints. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 10 about all the disciples, including you and I. We don't get an exemption from this. In verse 22 of Matthew 10, he says, you will be hated by all because of my name. And then in verse 39, he says, he who has found his life will lose it, but he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Why do you think you're exempt from that? Why? Because some false prophet with a multi-million dollar home and a private jet takes an Old Testament verse out of context meant for the nation of Israel and he applies it to you? Is that why? The Bible, specifically the New Testament, tells you that suffering is your gift from God. Philippians 1.29 It has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, there's that language again. You should not only believe, and we say, Amen, I love sovereign grace. I love that God saved me. It's, he gave me the gift of faith. He gave me the gift to believe. Hallelujah. But not only believe, he says, but also to suffer for his sake. The idea that God only wills health and prosperity for his people is an awful distortion of Christianity. God redeemed the world through suffering. You want to put that in the hands of Satan or chance? And you'll wonder why I hate the prosperity gospel. And I know many of you do. I don't need to rehash that with you. 
as they spread their poison all over the world. We know the evil of it. And most of you here can refute that false gospel. But brethren, listen to me. Whether you realize it or not, the essence of the prosperity gospel infects your faith. This idea of reaping and sowing is found in every religion, ancient religion, mythology, animism, pantheism, Hinduism, paganism. This is karma, basically. The most primitive of false religions have a people trying to live up in their lives so that they could please God, so that he could bless them. This cause-effect religion, it's nice, it's simple, it's clean. You follow God, you keep his commandments, and you'll be blessed. Even the pagan philosophers of our world know that this is not true. Remember, only the good die young. And yes, the Old Covenant operates by these principles of sowing and reaping. It's all over the Old Testament. But then you have the anomalies too. In the wisdom, usually in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament, they mess up the simplicity of this reaping and sowing idea. Job, Proverbs, throughout Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Psalm 44, Psalm 88. They all challenge this nice, clean, religious principle. Psalm 34, 19. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, have this suffering servant who's mocked and despised by the people. He's a lamb that's led to the slaughter, but he didn't open his mouth. He didn't bring this upon himself. He trusted God in the womb, yet he was poured out like water. His heart melted like wax. They pierced his hands and feet. And I won't go on. I just put three men on base for Brother David during the, <laughs> during the, commu- uh, the, the uh, Lord's Supper devotional. He can knock him in. Finally, in the Psalms' last four verses, we find a corporate idea for God to wake up from the slumber, deliver, restore. You see four verbs here. Awake, rouse yourself, rise up, redeem us. Look at verse 23. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come, our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Israel calls upon God to respond based upon his steadfast love, his covenant relationship. Even though they didn't understand all of the mystery of the suffering of the righteous, they end up not without hope. Their suffering has not produced a cynical resignation, but hope that God's final purpose of a restored fellowship will be accomplished. Yes, things aren't as they should be. We live in a real world, but they had hope. And they pray, arise, Lord, redeem our nation. Not because we've been good. Notice, even though they rehash everything in their confusion, they don't lay the fact of, of God delivering them on their goodness. But what? At the end of the verse, because of your steadfast love, your chesed, your steadfast love, your covenant faithfulness. Psalm 44 expresses the tension between God's promises and his unfailing love and our present suffering. It's meant to encourage our faith in the midst of trials. Psalm 44 challenges us to hope in God. And a God who is sovereign over every trial in your life. And let's close by considering some application. First of all, from verses 1 to 3, we ought to, like the psalmist does, regularly rehearse the mighty acts of God. Remember them. We're dependent upon the witnesses of Scripture who have gone before us. This is why in two weeks, God willing, we'll begin a study in 1 Samuel. You might ask, well, why? Why First Samuel? Why do we study, why do we waste the pre- precious hour of our time to learn about these people or this person in history who's long gone now? Why study the Old Testament at all? Why do I need to know about Hannah or Samuel or David in this ancient book? Well, because that ancient book was not merely ancient history. Romans 15.4 makes it very clear. It says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction 
that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Psalm 44 was written for your encouragement and hope, not merely as the personal reflection of an author at some time during the persecution of the nation. Psalm 44 would be a psalm that would be equally appreciated by Israel when they were in exile hundreds of years later in Babylon. Psalm 44 would continue to edify God's people during the first few centuries of the church as the early church suffered persecution. And Psalm 44 is and will continue to be a comfort to God's people even to the end of the age. Secondly, communicate God's mighty acts to the next generation. God gave Israel Deuteronomy 4 so that they would pass down their traditions and God's word from generation to the next. What do we have? We have preaching. We have discipleship, Bible study. We have group studies, Sunday school, testimonies, catechisms, family worship. These continue to bear witness of God's exploits from one generation to the next. Read the biographies of great Christians who persevered to the end. Study the characters of the Bible. Recount God's goodness to them in the past, and that will give you hope for the future. Our God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. Thirdly, we need Psalm 44. We need Psalm 44 and Job and Ecclesiastes and Psalm 88 and and these darker passages of Scripture in the canon for us to understand how God works in a fallen world. Psalm 44 brings balance to our presuppositions about how God must work. If you remember a few months ago, we did Psalm 36. I'll refresh you. We found there David's suffering affliction, and that suffering came as a result of his personal sin. And if you remember in that sermon, I said we have to be ready to examine ourselves. We ought to ask ourselves in the midst of trial, is this trial the consequence of some fault or some sin that God is chastening me for? What lesson do I need to learn? Well, Psalm 44 brings this into balance. It tells us that there are times in your life when you will suffer, and that suffering will come from the hand of God, and it will have no connection whatsoever to sin. Suffering and trials may be unrelated to chastisement and yet still come from the hand of God and still be among the all things that God works together for our good. And we need to understand this when we suffer. We need to understand this when our brethren suffer. We don't want to be like Job's comforters and jump to that conclusion that suffering is the result of some sin. That was a wrong assessment on their part. God rebuked them for that, even though they were their theology was pure, so to speak. We often do the same thing. We make the same assessment. I'm going through this because of some sin. And Satan is right there to remind us of that, to accuse us. We need to keep Psalm 44 in our toolbox as Psalm 36. But when we think we have it, it all has come down to our control, pull out Psalm 44. Remember, God's in control. Since the psalm was written as a corporate lament, this is you know we we tend to I've said this often in psalms we tend to individualize the psalm, but this was a corporate lament. This was the core. This was God's people as a whole. Let's consider how corporately, as a church body, we can apply this. There have been times and will be times that as a church we will suffer through challenging times. Just over the last three years, having seven or eight families leave our church moving from New Jersey. Yet we can look at this and say, Lord, are we not doing things right? We see churches around us adopting worldly styles of music. They're not interested, more interested in atmosphere than they are biblical faithfulness. They're putting on shows. They're preaching about Barbie. And they grow. And we can commiserate with the psalmist and say, Lord, aren't we doing things right here? We've been a faithful church. We center on Christ. We love the gospel. We preach the gospel every Sunday. We're not preaching ourselves. We're not preaching some some movie. 
We seek to honor you with our music. We, we desire only every Lord's Day to worship you as you prescribed in your word, and yet you send people elsewhere. Why is it that a church can spend an entire yearly budget on just the, our entire yearly budget on just their sound system, and we struggle to pay the pastors? Have we not been faithful, Lord? Lord, you know we don't want numbers. We want to honor you. We want to see people grow. We want to prepare people for heaven. If we've worshipped a false god in our church, you would know it. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. And there are times as Christians and times as churches, we will suffer leanness in the things of earth simply because of faithfulness. And there are going to be a temptation on our part to look and see what God's doing around the world. How come he's sending them there? Why, why that? And our faithfulness will be challenged, both individually and corporately. That's why we need, and you need, a biblically robust theology of suffering. It's the only way you're going to be able to process and understand and survive the trials. Fourth brings us to the fourth one. God-ordered suffering must have a place in your theology. Psalm 44, Job, Ecclesiastes are all in the canon of Scripture for a reason. Because of the reality of such disappointment in in our lives. Who can never say, who could say, who could say this? Who could say they never felt abandoned or forsaken by God? Ever. This has a legitimate place in the canon of Scripture because it has a legitimate place in the reality of our lives, of every believer. The book of Job is in the canon of Scripture for a reason. And it's not ultimately about why the righteous suffer, but it's that the righteous suffer. And that raises the deeper question, how am I going to worship a God who seems to be sleeping while the righteous suffer? This is the text you run to, brethren. Psalm 44. Psalm 44. How Can, can you worship a God who seems to be sleeping as the righteous suffer? Psalm 44 says emphatically, yes. I can run to this text. When you experience a loss in your life, and there may be no explanation for it, and you seek and seek and seek for a reason, it has to be okay that there appears to be no reason. That has to be okay, or you're not going to make it to the end. You're not always going to be able to figure God out. He's not always going to nicely fit into your package, your, your theological package. He is a God who acts sovereignly in his distribution of all gifts, including suffering. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases, Psalm 115. Many are the plans of man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails, Psalm, uh, Proverbs 19. The Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back, Isaiah 14. He is our sovereign God whose plan works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, Ephesians 1. Some will suffer less. Some will suffer more. It's as he decrees. Can you accept this? Can you accept this and come out worshiping God? Is there room in your theology that you can come out like Job and be able to say, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Or like the Hebrew children who were in the fiery furnace because they were commanded to uh, to bow before an idol and they said, no, they said, we believe God is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, he, they say, even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve God's or worship the gold statue that you've set up. In other words, even if we're martyred, we won't bow to those idols. Is that your God? That's the God who will carry us to the end. Do you need a God that you could pack nicely into your own understanding? Let me tell you, that God's going to be of no comfort to you when reality hits in life. When you're diagnosed with cancer, when your family member dies, when your child disappoints you, when you feel rejected by God for no apparent reason at all, you think the God of the prosperity gospel is going to help you? He only condemns. 
This is your God, the God of Psalm 44. The psalmist does not fear embarrassing God here. He does not fear ruining God's reputation. And remember, ultimately, it's not the sons of Korah that wrote this. It's the Holy Spirit who wrote this. And God has no trouble writing this about himself because ultimately he knows that suffering serves the kingdom of God. It serves the kingdom of God by leading us to Christ. It takes us past Israel. It takes us past the martyrs of the past. And it puts us onto the cross of Calvary where the suffering servant was put on the cross as the only one who was perfectly innocent and perfectly righteous. And that changes everything. No longer are we under a package of works righteousness. In the new covenant, we are set free from the law of sin and death. And it completely changes everything. Let me show you this. Turn to Romans chapter 8 in closing. Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul quotes Psalm 44. Brothers and sisters, Satan, this world, false religions, prosperity gurus that are all preaching to you that suffering is getting in the way of your happiness, suffering is getting in the way of your satisfaction, that works righteous, instructed conscience of yours is preaching to you, I'm suffering because of some sin that I committed. In the New Covenant, suffering is a battle scar. It's a sign of your loyalty to Him. It's your purple heart Suffering is your purple heart. It's the price of your identification with Christ. Suffering is assumed for the Christian. Suffering is the cost of following Jesus. You will be hated by the world because they hated him first. Following Jesus will affect every relationship, even the closest of relationships. Jesus said that one's enemies would be in their own household. Romans 8. Let's start back at 16. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer. There's the suffering being assumed. Provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's been Revealed to us. Now, I'll skip down to verse 22. Here's the, uh, I'm sorry, verse 22. For we know the whole creation is groaning together in pains of childbirth. Verse 23, again, we groan. In verse 24, for in this hope we are saved. Now go down to verse 28. We know that all these things, right? All what? All of the previous things, the groaning, the suffering, all of it. What? God, um, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 35, go down. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, and here's the quotation of verse 22 from Psalm 44. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Notice something here. Very different from the psalm. In Psalm 44, verse 22, the psalmist says this in the midst of despair. He's despairing his lost nation. But what does the new covenant do? What does Christ do to suffering? Look at verse 37. This is the words of Paul. Even as he quotes it, he quotes the same verse. But then what does he say? No! Right? We're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sleep to the sh- uh, sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. This is something that is unique to the new covenant, uniquely different from the law, utterly different from the law. 
something that every religion in this world lacks. This is what makes us unique as Christians, that you who are declared righteous on the basis of the finished work of Christ will suffer. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. How does that verse end? New covenant concept in the Psalms. But the Lord will deliver him out of them all. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For thou art with me. There is a grand purpose in your suffering that you would die to yourself. It's perfectly orchestrated for your good to conform you to the image of Christ, that Christ might live in you by building your faith and building your hope. Your suffering is not the result of chance. It is for God's sake that you suffer. And that suffering, whatever it might be, lies in the perfect balance of the perfect hands of a perfect, holy, loving, and good God. And part of what it means for you to be like Him, like God, like Jesus, is understanding this. If you don't, you're going to be tempted in the midst of trials, to to either resign yourself, woe is me, play the victim, or seek revenge, or vent your anger over some injustice. But Psalm 44 offers you and I the opportunity to transform what others count as your misfortune or your meaningless pain as an opportunity to glorify God. Brothers and sisters, following Jesus means that you will lose friendships. It will, you will, you may lose jobs. You'll have severed relationships even in your own family. You will be tested to choose between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And one day it may mean your life. Only if you understand this will you be ready. How you respond in the midst of suffering, in the midst of undeserved pain and apparent injustice is a moment where you can show the world the kingdom values that God has placed in your heart, that he is the strength of your heart. Amen.